Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the Liberals are making things up to justify their invocation of the Emergencies Act. We'll talk to Conservative MP Raquel Dancho, and later we'll look at the Maverick leadership race in Alberta with candidate Tarek Elnega. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hey, welcome along. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North, The Andrew Lawton Show. Going back to a pre-taped edition of the program, because right now I'm actually on my way back to Alberta. I was just there last week for one conference. Now I'm going back for another conference, as I'll uh, talk about later on today. This is why people oftentimes uh, assume that I am an Albertan, and I say, no, it's just the Alberta sensibility. But because I was going to be on a plane, I didn't think my seatmate would like it if I started doing a live podcast on you know, Air Canada's Wi-Fi, if that is good enough to sustain a live podcast, which I highly doubt if it's as good as other aspects of airline service. But uh, nevertheless, we decided to uh, make sure we had a show today. We'd pre-record something for you. And uh, that show is today. And there is a lot to talk about uh, because we have the Emergencies Act inquiry, which we discussed a little bit a couple of days ago. But it's been fascinating to hear how the Liberals are defending the inquiry, specifically Marco Mendicino. Now, Marco Mendicino, he's the public safety minister. He took over for Bill Blair and actually, he is a strong contender for being even worse than Bill Blair as public safety minister, which I, I was not convinced was possible. But part of it is because he just makes things up. He just makes things up. I remember during the Freedom Convoy, after the Emergencies Act had been invoked, he gave this press conference, and I, I can't play the clip because it's like six minutes long, but at the beginning, he talks about how there was this violent cell that the government had evidence of that was going to be committing acts of violence in Ottawa, and they had access to weapons, and it was going to be terrible. And when reporters asked him about it, it took a few tries. He eventually walked it back for evidence. He said, well, I, you know, I've seen some stuff on social media. Really? That was, uh, that was enough. Okay. Well, now we have Marco Mendicino uh, citing things that are demonstrably false. Take a look at this line he gave in the House of Commons committee hearing the other day when residents can't get to work, when they can't take their children to school, when they, uh, seniors can't get around because public transportation can't get to them, um, when um, people who live in apartment buildings uh, find that their front doors are locked and that fires are set uh, in the hallways and corridors. Point of order, um, It is That statement right there has been proven false by the Ottawa Police Service, and there is no connection to the protesters whatsoever, and for this minister to suggest that yeah. is absolutely unacceptable of this committee. Now, that was Conservative MP from Medicine Hat, Glenn Motts, who jumped in there and pointed out, and I'm glad he did, that Ottawa police themselves have said this is a complete load of nonsense. They didn't use those words, but they said this arson incident had absolutely nothing to do with the convoy. This was a myth that was perpetuated by the media. It was repeated time and time again by liberal members of parliament. Uh, just take a look at this reel that my colleague uh, Cosman Georgia did over at True North. Of all of the politicians who cited this fake thing, this fake story as fact. Violence is commonplace. We saw an example of this violence, an attempted arson downtown of an apartment building where people started a fire. When they exited, they taped the door. 
and an attempted arson, all of which, Madam Speaker, was caught on video. It has been an illegal occupation that has uh, been harassing people in residential areas of Ottawa. People don't feel safe in their own homes. There have been reports of attempted arson. Of Canadians are also concerned hearing reports of an attempted arson in the lobby of a residential apartment building. Because we see um, hate speech, we see uh, illegal acts such as arson. The incessant honking, the arson attempts. The incessant honking, the arson attempts. An attempted arson of a residential building in the occupation area. We've seen the active sabotage of 911 emergency call lines and even an attempted arson. Other alleged crimes have even been more egregious. Ottawa police are investigating the attempted arson of a downtown apartment building. The situation persists, fueled in part by foreign funding. We saw reports of attempted arson in some of the buildings. And it certainly does not include arson or pushing into a residential apartment building and barricading the exits with handcuffs. The arrests for conspiracy to murder, attempted arson of a residential building. Over the past three weeks, we have watched assaults, attempted arson. They have been living in fear, fear that their apartment buildings may be torched by arson. Seen assaults, attempted arson, widespread harassment. There's been attempted arson with the attempt of handcuffing doors shut so that if a fire started, people would be burned alive. Death threats, an attempted arson. A building had an attempted arson where the doors were taped shut. Another building had occupiers attempting to handcuff the doors. There are reports of attempted arson, bomb threats. Hate crimes, misogyny, arson. Horns honked all night long. We saw thefts and attempted arson. I absolutely love that reel, by the way. But to their credit, and I'm not going to give them much credit, but to their credit compared to Marco Mendicino, a lot of them said that before Ottawa police came out and said, yeah, no, 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 this had nothing to do with the convoy. Mendicino should know better. So he either doesn't know, and he's probably the worst public safety minister you could have in a period which the government says is a national emergency, or he doesn't care, which means he is making it up. He is throwing around and uttering falsehoods, things he knows to be false, because the government has his back up against a wall and has to justify its invocation of the Emergencies Act, and to do so, they evidently need to concoct evidence because they don't have any real evidence. You can say it was disruptive, which it was. You can say it was annoying, which to a lot of people it was. But what you can't say is that the convoy created a national emergency. Even if you want to say that what happened at the border crossings in Coots, in Emerson, in Windsor, rose to the level of an emergency, that would be a tough case to make because provinces and municipalities cleared those out on their own. People need to remember this. Those things were done. The Windsor-Detroit border was done by the time the Federal Emergencies Act was invoked. So the Emergencies Act was invoked to deal with a bunch of cars and trucks on Wellington Street, on one stretch of street in downtown Ottawa, which has no residential addresses on it. That was it. That was it. This is what the government said was a national emergency, which, as was mentioned by, I believe, Christine Van Gyne on Tuesday's show, is supposed to come when provinces lack the resources to deal with it on their own, which wasn't the case. It did not rise to that level. 
So if the government is going to continue to allude to things that might make it conceivably an emergency, like, oh, there was a violent threat, there was sedition, there was terrorism. I mean, they've never said terrorism, but an NDP member of parliament was trying to plant that word in Marco Mendicino's mouth at that committee saying, hey, are, are you talking about uh, domestic terrorism here? Which, you know, it's for a political end. I don't know. What do you think? And, and I mean, Mendicino didn't take the bait. But this is the form of rhetoric you're getting from people about the convoy. And, and I mean, the charges, the criminal charges against people like Chris Barber and Tamara Leach, no idea if those are going to result in convictions. But we're talking about mischief charges, which are relatively minor offenses. There was no property damage. There was no violent, there, violence. There was no threat. There was no treason. There was no sedition. There were, however... Bouncy castles and pig roasts and saunas and hot tubs. So if those are all uh, proxies now for sedition and violence, then I, I guess we did have a national emergency on our hands. But I don't think one can say that we got there. So the question to the government is, show us the evidence. Still... Days after announcing the inquiry, the government has not agreed to waive cabinet confidence. So we won't even see necessarily, the inquiry will not see the documents that the governments were sharing with each other as they discussed the Emergencies Act. All we're being told is that, well, you know, we consulted experts and, uh, you know, we made sure we were on solid footing. I mean, for all we know, there was a cabinet minister that said to Trudeau, yeah, don't do this. And we won't see that. Because they don't want us to see the internal cabinet documents. And, and I have to wonder if there were members of the cabinet that were saying, if you pop this cork, you can't put it back in. And that's what they don't want us to see. Perhaps there aren't necessarily sycophants in that cabinet, or you have one or two independent thinkers. I don't want to you know, speculate here, but I, I do know that there were a lot of backbench MPs that were clear in their discomfort and only went along with it because they knew it was a confidence motion because Justin Trudeau said that. So it could be you had a couple of principled cabinet members that were trying to stop this and were unsuccessful. But that would explain why the liberals don't want us to see the cabinet documents or because they just don't have any evidence. Maybe they want to believe that if they don't show them to us, we'll assume, well, they must have known something. They must have had some information as though they've deserved at this stage, two years into pandemic theater, like they get the benefit of the doubt, which uh, certainly is not something I'm going to afford them. I want to welcome into the show here Raquel Dancho, who is a conservative member of parliament, also the public safety critic for the conservatives. So she's been very active on this file. Thanks for coming on today. Good to speak to you. Great to be with you, Andrew. So explain to me your reaction to this inquiry, because I think a lot of people assumed that the focus of it was going to be looking into the government's uh, decision to invoke the Emergencies Act, what happened when it did. Uh, Justin Trudeau's announcement, as I was talking about the other day, makes it sound like he's more interested in an inquiry about everyone else, about the protests, about the protesters, the organizers, which isn't the point of it, as I understood. Yeah, that's correct. The point of the built-in inquiry in the Emergencies Act is to hold the government accountable for invoking it, to ensure that, in fact, the very high threshold needed to invoke this very, very powerful law was met. So that's the point of the inquiry. But as just as you've said, the way that the Liberals are approaching this is, no, 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 look, don't look over here, look at the protesters again, let's talk about them again. But no, 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 this inquiry is to hold them accountable. That's the purpose of it. And they're not 
really living up to the spirit of the act. Now, I know that we had uh, ministers uh, Marco Mendicino and, and David Lametti appearing before committee. One of the notable examples of, of this the other day was, was Minister Mendicino uh, citing a, a now a very debunked myth about the convoy that it had been re- involved in this apartment arson. Even the Ottawa police have said that's not true. So, I mean, my question is, if they're still citing things that are fiction as their basis for the Emergencies Act, uh, what is it that there's, that's in these cabinet documents they don't seem to want the inquiry to have access to? I'd, I'd really like to know. I would really like to know. And I think Canadians would like to know, look, The threshold to invoke this is incredibly high, as I said, because the Emergencies Act has such powerful powers that it can infringe upon charter rights. So it has this built-in checks and balance to ensure that the government who invoked it is held accountable. So it's a very big deal for charter rights. The precedent it it sets is very, very, very much a big deal. Canadians need to be paying very close attention to this, regardless of how you view the protest. That's what's important right now is the precedent this is setting. So we need to be able to hold the government accountable. Did they meet that high threshold? And Andrew, that threshold is whether there was a national threat to national security. Was there a national threat to the economy? Was there a national threat to uh, public safety? Well, if we take the economy, we know that the border blockades at the Ambassador Bridge and at Coots, Alberta were cleared before the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Mm -hmm. The police did a great job. They didn't need the powers there to clear those blockades. So for me, that's out. Now, if you look at the, uh, if it was a national threat to public safety, well, frankly, Andrew, I walked through that protest every day for three weeks. If it was so dangerous, how in the world did they allow uh, members of parliament, staff, members of the public to get anywhere near this protest? So their argument has not been convincing. Uh, that they've met that threshold. It's still within question. So that's the purpose of this inquiry, to find out if that threshold was met. We don't believe it was. Does the government need to, and, and perhaps this question may need to be answered by courts eventually, does the government need to prove that there was a, a documented demonstrable threat or that it believed there was, or, or that it believed there could have been if it had gone on further? You know, I'm not quite sure. Uh, What I do know is that the inquiry, it has to look to see if there was a national threat to public safety or the economy. We don't believe from the evidence that has been released to the public that that was meant. It's not to say it wasn't disruptive, wasn't to say that the blockades weren't illegal, but was it a threat to national security? Again, a very high bar. And we need to find that out. That's what we're trying to find out. Yeah, and one of the uh, civil liberties uh, lawyers I spoke to on the show the other day had pointed out that since the Emergencies Act was put into place in law in nineteen in the in the nineteen eighties, we've had nine eleven, we've had a global pandemic, we've had uh, you know other terrorist attacks, and and none of that has warranted the invocation of the act. Yeah, you know, you raise a really good point. The purpose of this act, which is really the most powerful law in the land, is if there's an invasion, if there's a mass breakdown in our telecommunications, our economy crashes, something, or perhaps a pandemic. Never use this for the pandemic. So again, those are the types of things this Emergency Act was built to address. And because maybe in those extreme uh, circumstances, uh, perhaps charter rights will be infringed upon. That's why this act is so serious and, and left for the absolute worst case scenarios not a number of people parked illegally in downtown Ottawa where people could easily travel to work. Uh, members of parliament, again, we went into West Block every single day, had to walk by the protests. So 
again, for us, this wasn't, it, it's not, look, no one seems to be convinced that this was a national threat to public safety. So that's what they need to prove. Did they meet that threshold? And it's high, again, for a reason, because we're talking about infringement on charter rights and the precedent this sets. This will ricochet and make waves through the generations, the, the termination in this inquiry. So that's why we're being so tough on them about this and saying, look, if you're so confident, then tell us what you know, because we're obviously not hearing the whole story because we're not convinced the national security threat was met. So you have the judicial inquiry that was announced this week. There's also a, a parliamentary committee that's been assembled to look into this too, correct? I, I mean, are you optimistic that either is capable of getting into this if you don't have a government that wants to be cooperative? You know, it's a great question. It's it's pretty frustrating. I mean, this government continues to basically be saying, oh, we have everything in hand. We have Canadians' backs. Just trust us. Well, this is a government whose leader, the prime minister, has violated ethics laws multiple times. We're learning more things, Andrews. I'm sure you've heard about the Agacon billionaire island scandal where the prime minister took a $200,000 vacation and gave the owner of that island a multi-million dollar government grant. Clear violation of ethics laws. The SNC-Lavalin scandal, the WE charity. This is an area where the government has, where Trudeau has no, there's no good credit built up. So there's no reason Canadians should just trust him that he will hold the letter of the law uh, to the spirit that it requires, and that's holding him accountable for invoking this dangerous law. I know the NDP ultimately gave the Emergencies Act a rubber stamp, and, and of course, when we learned about this supply and confidence agreement, I had to wonder if those two were related, because the NDP is, is going to keep the Liberals in until 2025. The Bloc Québécois, to its credit, was very critical of the Emergencies Act. Have you found any interest from the NDP after this, now that the dust has settled, to, to really have a, a robust parliamentary inquiry here? Or, do you, or is your sense that they're still just going to go and keep just going along with the Liberal narrative on this act? You know, when it first, uh, when the committee was, was first struck, uh, we were very skeptical with the power the NDP had. In fact, they get to vice chair the committee, as does the Bloc Québécois, whereas uh, Conservatives, Her Majesty's official opposition tasked with holding this government to account, was not permitted to have a leading role on that campaign or on that committee, pardon me. So we were very skeptical. But I do have to say the Bloc Québécois and the NDP are doing their duty. They're upholding their duty to hold the government to account. So that is actually very good news for Canadians. They are not, they're, they're not pulling any punches. They're being tough on the government. I did a panel with the NDP, Matthew Green, who him and I probably agree on nothing except for this. Uh, we were in full uh, lockstep on our position that the government needs to waive cabinet confidence so that all those cabinet documents that informed this decision to invoke the act are released into the inquiry so they can be part of the investigation. We're very firm on that. Waiving cabinet confidence means we may have an inquiry worth something that may actually do its job and hold the government accountable. But so far, they've refused, Andrew, and it's very odd because they're very confident in invoking this. And yet, if they were so confident, just show us what's, uh, what's in that cabinet confidence then. Right. So we're calling yeah. their bluff a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Show us the receipts, as they think, as I think they say on uh, Twitter. Uh, Raquel Dancho, conservative public safety critic. Great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Andrew. That was Raquel Dancho here on The Andrew Lawton Show. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be shifting gears into Alberta politics, a favorite pastime of mine, despite not actually living in Alberta. That's coming up next here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. tuned in to the Andrew Lawton Show. 
Hey, welcome back. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. A lot of the Albertans in the audience, of which there are a great many of you, and I thank you for that, tell me that they uh, uh, see me more often in Alberta than anywhere else, uh, just when I pop up on social media speaking at this event or that event. And I've always loved it. I used to host, uh, or guest host rather, for Danielle Smith on a radio station in Calgary. I've always enjoyed being out there, and I've always enjoyed that Alberta sensibility. So I have a strong interest in Alberta politics. That's why I've had Premier Kenny on the show. That's why I've been covering the UCP leadership review. And it's why I wanted to spend a moment talking about the Maverick Party's leadership race right now. It's not just the Conservative Party of Canada having a leadership race, but also the Mavericks, formerly the Wexit Party. They ran in the last federal election and only got a a small percentage of the vote. It was their first election, and they had an interim leader, Jay Hill, the former conservative cabinet member, who was only an interim leader. He said he's had his fun in the sun. He wasn't there. He was trying to help the party get off the ground. So now the party is looking forward. And one of the candidates is an Andrew Lawton show favorite. We had him on the show last election. I actually went out and visited him on his ranch, Tarek El Naga, the uh, cowboy from the United Arab Emirates now seeking the Maverick leadership. Tarek, good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on the show. Likewise. Thanks for having me on. You and I have spoken a couple of times. I went out to visit you on your uh, ranch in Alberta back during the election. And uh, in that election, the Maverick Party didn't really make too much of an impact here. But obviously, the party is going through a a bit of a change. One of those is this leadership race. Uh, Why did you decide to step up and, and seek the leadership of this party? So I really believe in the message and I really think that things are not going to change for Western Canada. So we saw it in 2015, 2019 and 2021. And I think 2021, to your point, was the last time Westerners were like, oh, we're going to try this one more time to get Trudeau out. But the fact is, in those three elections, the election was called way before Manitoba started counting its votes. And way before, obviously, the area we live in here started counting votes. Um, So the fact is, just because of the seat count, we will never determine who forms government in Western Canada. All we have the the statistical power or control on is whether it's a minority or majority government. That's it. Uh, But who's prime minister uh, won't make a difference. So I, I... I was in Ottawa actually for a portion of of the freedom protest and I looked up Parliament Hill and here's 20 acres that makes decisions for my life and our Western lives that has no idea how we live nor cares about how we live. So that was the inspiration. I looked up at Parliament Hill and I said, we can't continue to be managed by this building. We need self-management. And that's that's the inspiration of why I came back to run. Now, when you say self-management, are are you trying to advance the deal that Quebec has in Alberta, which is basically running all of these things like uh, income tax collection, provincial police and all of that? Or or is self-management to you separation, like just get out of the confederation altogether? Great question. I'll answer that in two ways. So my baseline is complete autonomy. So rather than necessarily form a separate country is full and complete autonomy. I always say like if my political legacy in Canada that I could retire on is that I've made Ottawa irrelevant in the lives of Western Canadians, then I've done my job. Now, it's not up to me. It's up to Western Canadians to say, do we want out or not? If they want out through a referendum, then my job is to execute on their wishes. Like, again, it's government works for the people, not the other way around. But what I, the platform I'm running on is a complete 
Um, essentially, not dis dissimilar to how you mentioned it for Quebec, is a complete self-management of all day-to-day -day affairs in the West, whether that's taxation, immigration, money, um, aviation, industrial development, resource development, trade deals, etc. I think we're in a much better position to negotiate and deal for ourselves and our own selves rather than rely on Ottawa, which has now shown us for the last seven or eight years, we'll completely step on our way of life, step on our industry, step on our economy. And there's no votes to leave here. Again, government is determined. I mean, the GTA alone has more seats than Alberta and Saskatchewan put together. So that's if you win Toronto, you essentially become prime minister. That's the way that works. Uh, and you win the rest of the country. So it doesn't really matter how we vote. So that's why I'm, I'm saying let's vote for what we really want and let's vote for, for autonomy and self-management. In, in what you're saying there, which I think is completely accurate, you just have to look at the map on election night, is the Maverick Party not then self-defeating? Because your whole point is that you have to have this party to advocate for Western interests that you say are not represented in the federal system. So how can, I mean, even if the Maverick Party were to elect a bunch of candidates, that still is going to be dwarfed by the power of the Ontario and Quebec candidates. So you're, you're, so here's, here's the difference. And this is kind of where I say, look at the effectiveness of these parties that have not formed governments. One is the Bloc Québécois, so 31 seats, wildly effective at getting what they want, and will make deals in the House openly saying, you want our 31 seats on this bill or this movement? Well, what's in it for Quebec? So can you imagine 50 Maverick seats? I'm going to be conservative here. There's 104 ridings in Western Canada. Let's say we get half of them. 50 Maverick seats. Can you imagine the power they would have to hold the balance of power? Not dissimilar to what Jagmeet Singh has done with Justin Trudeau um, and said, hey, you want my support until 2025? This is what, these are the things I'm looking for. And it was free dental care, free pharma care, what have you. And I say free in quotation marks because <laughs> you and I pay for it. But, but the thing is, there is an immense amount of power in holding the balance of power. Now, in the next election, uh, whoever wins, again, Toronto decides that. I have no control over that. But assuming by some miracle the Conservatives win um, Toronto, right? Now, if they do, uh, and if they win Montreal, and they're looking for a balance of power, can you imagine the power to go um, to tell someone like Pierre Polyev, hey, you want to become prime minister? We got you. We'll make you prime minister. We'll give you our seats in a minority government. But here's a list of demands for, for Western autonomy. And that essentially is just a destruction of federal overreach and pushing it back into provincial control. That's all I'm asking for. Your story, we talked about this uh, when I, I interviewed you for the first time back in the federal election, is a fascinating one. You're from the United Arab Emirates. You visited Calgary uh, to see the stampede and just fell in love with the province. And I, I think it was 10 years ago that you decided to sell your house, move to Alberta, buy the horse, buy the farm, and, and all of that. When was it that you, uh, as a new Canadian, as an immigrant, first realized, you know what, things aren't working for the West? Uh, it was an incredibly obvious in my professional life. So my recreational life is, again, and, and my lifestyle, if you want to call it, around ranching and agriculture and rodeo, that's all new to me and exotic. But um, growing up in the Middle East means that oil and gas runs in my blood. And I grew up in the heart of oil and gas central. And not just that, but I've lived through Gulf War I and Gulf War II. And, and those were both resource wars in which Saddam essentially A, invaded Kuwait, and then B, I, the second war I call the Halliburton War, in which, you know, um, U.S. interests in the region were pretty important. Now, 
I move here where we, and I professionally, I'm an engineer by education. I professionally work in oil and gas. Um, and we're given the gift of the third biggest proven oil reserves in the world. And we have a government that is actively saying, we do not want the prosperity of it. Let us put Canadians out of work. Um, let us wreck our economy intentionally to appear good on the world stage while we buy $20 million of foreign oil a day in Canada. So this was apparent to me within, I'd say, the first 15 minutes of working professionally in Alberta, relatively 15 minutes. And I'm thinking, how? Why are we doing this? Why are we intentionally destroying our local economy in favor of shipping Canadian dollars and Canadian jobs abroad? And that's, and that's kind of where the where this isn't working kind of mix showed up right away. Why am I paying in my first year of paying income taxes when I moved here? Why is a very significant portion of my federal taxes going to pay for road schools and hospitals in Quebec, which is fine on paper, but then the Quebec government provincially is saying, actually, Alberta, um, we don't want your resources, but we'll take your money. You've got, I mean, the Conservative Party, which is down to, I think, like 99 or 100 seats right now, would be dead without Alberta and Saskatchewan seats, where they tend to get, you know, a pretty sizable chunk of their caucus and influence from. You've got, uh, in the leadership race right now, no one really coming from the West. You've got uh, one guy from BC, you've got one guy from Saskatchewan, Joseph Borgel, though he, he's unlikely to make the ballot at, at this point. So you don't even have Western interests represented in the Conservative leadership race. Why, in your view, is it that the Conservatives can't or ha have not shown an interest in being that voice for the West when they have the base of power there and they're not at risk of getting ousted? I mean, even with the PPC and the Mavericks, you had Conservative MPs winning out there with 50, 60% of the vote? So it's a great question. And uh, it's a number of things. One, it is decades long uh, generational attachments to the color of blue. And we need to, I need to um, tell Westerners it's okay to vote differently. And a big portion of that is the reason why we vote blue is, well, we want to get Trudeau out. Uh, because we do, we, we have no love for Justin Trudeau in Western Canada. You know that, I know that, Westerners know that. But the thing is, our seats don't make a difference. So what happened is the establishment Conservative Party have now taken our votes for granted. We're not going to vote. You're going to vote for us anyways. Who else are you going to vote for? Right. Uh, and there's this immense fear of saying, well, if you don't vote for us, we'll get Trudeau. Well, we have Saskatchewan, for example, could not have been any more blue. Every single one of the 14 ridings in Saskatchewan went blue. All but four of the ridings in Alberta went blue, too. What did we get, right? It was called before Manitoba started counting. So, so the thing is, um, it, it's now telling Westerners that it's okay. You're absolutely right. Whether it's Pierre, Jean Charest, Leslie Lewis, et cetera, who may have certain policies that are okay, but they've taken the West for granted saying, you're gonna vote for us anyways. Plus my worry isn't them campaigning now for leadership of the conservatives. It's when one of them becomes leader of the Conservatives and they're going to try to court the Toronto vote or the Montreal vote, not dissimilar to Aaron O'Toole, how far left are they going to move? How far um, anti-West are they going to be? Like Aaron O'Toole sitting in his first meeting with Francois Legault and telling him, hey, Energy East is off the table. It's okay. Well, excuse me. Um, so that's kind of where we're taken for granted. So I have a huge job if I win this over the next three years is telling Westerners it's okay to vote otherwise. 
And the other thing as well is if the conservatives, I truly think if Pierre wins it, wins the leadership, and by some chance he wins Toronto, um, I will comfort Westerners saying he will be a much better prime minister than Justin Trudeau. Let me hold the balance of power. And I can do that with 50 seats easily. I mean, if, if Jagmeet Singh can do it with 20x seats and the bloc could do it for with 31 seats, we can too. I know that a few people, I was actually talking to a bunch of Albertans last weekend at a conference, uh, are still a little bit uneasy with the name Maverick Party. Some people just long for the Wexit name. Is a name change on the table or do you like Maverick? I'm forward? glad that you asked that. So in our leadership uh, bid, we, uh, in our leadership, so in addition to choosing which candidate you're looking for, there will be a question of, would you like to continue with the name Maverick or not to our members? So we'll put that back out to our members. Now, personally for me, I'm married to the mission of Western autonomy, not the name. So send me to Ottawa with the name Maverick on my shirt, Frontier, Western Party, Western Prosperity, what a new West party, you call it what you want to call it. I'm married to the mission of Western autonomy. And one of my followers said this, we're arguing over what we're gonna name the ball rather than getting the ball rolling. Um, so my, my mission is to get the ball rolling. Now, that being said, if we were gonna change the name, the color palette, et cetera, I'd engage a marketing professional because marketing counts. Um, so rather than say, you know, willy nilly pull out names from, from nowhere, let's go out and ask a marketing professional what would be the right SEO, the social media links, the right branding, the most recognizable logo, color, et cetera. So that's the way I would do it is, is bring in my corporate professional expertise into branding it the same way when you name a new product, let's say a car company is picking up a new model name, they do an immense amount of research, it's still the same car, but they do an immense amount of research as to what they're gonna call that car. So I do the same thing. Maverick leadership candidate, Tarek Alnega. Tarek, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Tarek Alnega. And the membership cutoff, if you are in Alberta and you want to get in on the Maverick Party leadership race, uh, it's coming up. I think it's just on April 30th. So you've got to act quickly if you want to get in that. I'm just going to be watching it from afar in Ontario. But I do thank you very much, uh, all of you, for tuning in today. We've got to end things there. Tomorrow, we've got a special edition of the program, a deep dive into modern conservatism. And does that mean progressive conservatism or does it mean something else? And if it's something else, how do we capture that? It's going to be a great discussion with Brian Lee Crowley of the McDonald Laurier Institute. And that'll do it. Hope you all have a great weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.